You are listening to the Teaching Matters podcast, a podcast created by the University of Edinburgh to debate and celebrate learning and teaching in higher education. This podcast complements the university's Teaching Matters blog and invites students and staff to engage in topical conversations. Episodes 12 to 14 accompany the Teaching Matters mini-series on inclusivity in the curriculum. In episodes 12 and 13, University of Edinburgh staff and students discuss the idealistic question, if we place diversity and inclusion at the heart of a curriculum review, what would this look like? In this episode, episode 12, our guest host, Diva Mukherjee, welcomes biology student Rosie Taylor, PhD student Diljeet Bachu, and project manager Katie Nicole Baines to the conversation. Happy listening. Hello everyone, my name's Diva. I'm currently the Vice President of Education with the Edinburgh University Students Association. Um, today we'll be talking about inclusivity and diversity and the role we can play in a possible curriculum review. So understanding what a curriculum review is, so I think at Edinburgh University, um, the four-year structure, the standard kind of undergraduate four-year structure of being able to do a lot of outside courses is really, really fantastic, but sometimes for students can be quite overwhelming and it can be a bit confusing on how to make the most of your degree. And I think in my understanding of what a curriculum review is, it really looks at those elements of making sure that students are having the best possible experience of academically of their degree that they possibly can um, and I personally definitely believe that inclusivity and diversity needs to be a core part of that kind of review particularly when um, the university is very old <laughs> it feels like um, there are a lot of changes that can be made particularly around diversity and inclusion throughout the curriculum um, so very very excited to hear from our fantastic panelists today so if you just go around and do a bit of an introduction and possibly why you're interested in inclusivity and diversity in these kinds of issues yeah so I'm I'm Rosie I'm a, a young meager second year student <laughs> I'm just going to my third year um, and I study biology um, and I'm also elected this coming year as the LGBT officer for the student association and I'm actually doing an really interesting summer studentship working for um, my school and looking at the Athena Swan um, charter that we use and how we measure like gender parity mm. and like inclusion of women and engaging women in climbing up to like senior positions so I'm really excited about that but I guess I come really um, to diversity and inclusion from a place of I am a disabled student I'm a queer student and I'm a female student and those are kind of like the guises and lenses that I look at diversity and inclusion through I guess which I mean there are like many lenses and they all overlap and that's very confusing for people and I feel like it can be quite um, at some point alienating for some people to join in certain discourses but I, I think that um, my, my experience with diversity and inclusion uh, and equality in the curriculum so far has, has been really eye-opening and really helped me kind of come to terms with my identity more than anything else. And um, that's been really nice, but I can't wait to see it become a bit mm-hmm. more improved here. Thank you. Hi, my name's Katie. I am the project manager for a research group called Evidence Base. Um, who are based in the School of Chemistry here at Edinburgh University and we are working on a project at the moment that is funded by the EPSRC, so the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, um, to look at growing the big grant club, so trying to understand why there aren't more women and minorities leading big grants, that's money of sort of £5 million or more in the UK. In the last 10 years the EPSRC has only funded big grants to women and minorities of about 5% of their total big grant spend, um, which just goes to show that it's not reflective um, of the actual population in science because going into the sciences, particularly biology and chemistry, it's now getting to more than 50-50 between men and women in that sphere. Um, So I have a keen interest in diversity and inclusion for the purposes of my my project um, and trying to embed this approach that we're taking with the research. So we are not focused on what we call a deficit model, so where you focus on trying to fix the underrepresented group and make them fit better into the system. We are looking at the system itself and trying to understand how the system needs to change to be more inclusive um, and benefit from that inclusivity. Hi, I'm Diljeet. I am a musician, activist, researcher. I've just finished my PhD here at the University of Edinburgh in the music department um, with funding from the Scottish Graduate School for Arts and Humanities. Um, So I'm kind of just in between things Mm -hmm. in terms of being a student and then going into being an educator in a more formal sense. So I've done some teaching um, within the music department here 
um, as a sort of graduate teaching assistant and I've also recently been lecturing at the University of Glasgow in the School of Cultural and Creative Arts and um, West, University of the West of Scotland for mm -hmm. commercial music students. So it's been a really interesting time for me, kind of taking my background from sort of community music to really embedded in social model, social model of disability um, and kind of learning more about that and kind of doing a lot of sort of disability focused work um, or disability inclusion focused work and kind of then embarking on my own identity sort of exploration journey um, through the PhD and trying to embed that in my research and now in my teaching in terms of how do I go forward as an inclusive educator um, in higher education and kind of, yeah, bringing my perspectives as a brown woman of Indian heritage, looking at what has been represented in the curricula that I've had contact with in the past sort of 30 years in education and what I want to be in there for my students now that I'm in a position mm. to be thinking about what I'm teaching um, and the freedom I have within higher education certainly to design my own content. Um, I also, as I said, I'm a musician and activist as well. I am um, really involved in the equalities movement within the trade union um, movement through the Musicians Union and I also run an arts organisation, the Scottish Asian Creative Artists Network, otherwise known as SCRAN, because Asians <laughs> like food. Um, and it's like a crop, you know, it's, it's a, again, that for me is, is trying to be um, really inclusive about what we mean by being Scottish Asian and what we mean by who's a creative artist mm -hmm. and having a really sort of artist-led movement for better visibility and understanding of the plurality and diversity of what it means to be Scottish Asian and working in the arts. Um, so that's something, I suppose, for me, my practice as a musician and an arts worker and my activism and my work as a researcher, educator in higher education are all kind of melding together at the moment. Okay, thank you so much. It's so great to see that. Um, it seems like everyone's kind of, all three of you are involved in like different bits of the university or have kind of experienced the university in like quite different ways, which I think is going to be really interesting when we're thinking about this conversation. Um, so just to kind of like kick it off, um, can you explain like what you think or what you understand when you hear the words diversity and inclusion and particularly in a higher education context and particularly in maybe an Edinburgh context? Because those words have like kind of, I think I've seen even over the past few years before as being a student to now, those words have really increased in popularity and use across different spaces, particularly in higher education. Um, but then there are a lot of conversations about how it's used. Um, so it'd be really interesting to know, particularly from all the backgrounds that you're from, engaging in different kind of projects within the university how you've interacted with this term and what you kind of think of them? I mean, I guess I... So for me, um, I suppose I have my own definitions mm -hmm. that I've thought about, about what do I mean when I talk about mm -hmm. diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. versus what I see represented yeah. um, in my experiences within the university and other spaces. Mm -hmm. So for me, real diversity inclusion is kind of almost drawing on that social model of disability where you frame barriers as not related to the individual who's mm -hmm. not able mm -hmm. to gain access to something. So looking at that overall structural access and access of mm -hmm. opportunity and equality of opportunity, for me, inclusion is really about breaking down things. I don't know if you're familiar with universal design. It's yeah. sort of a, um, now if I can remember who actually came up, Jörg Koch, I think, is Swedish? I may have got that wrong sort of philosopher I think and the, the sort of the, so the, the principles behind I think it's architecture actually is where it grounds and the idea of universal design is that you build um, an inclusive space from the get-go mm -hmm. and really on when I was doing my community music practice I got to work with Caroline Bowditch who is a dance practitioner and performance maker um, and she developed a lot of work around in, uh, universal design and arts practice and inclusive mm -hmm. arts practice you know how do you design learning opportunities and participatory arts experiences that are you know, universally accessible from the get-go. And I think for me that mindset of rather than trying to fix things, mm -hmm. how do we actually just build something that's really accessible and open mm -hmm. for everyone? Mm -hmm. So that for me is inclusion and diversity for me is that plurality. Mm -hmm. It's that, that real sort of everyone can be who they are mm -hmm. um, and that it's, it's about diversity on a larger scale and a broader scale it's rather than represent what I see it being represented as in reality mm -hmm. is often um, representation of specific mm -hmm. groups that are underrepresented or under mm -hmm. hard underserved 
and again with inclusion I often feel like in practice these things become targeted towards specific groups Mm -hmm. rather than being about the broader goal Mm -hmm. of just much more diverse representation across the board Mm -hmm. Um, and I find that when we talk about things like intersectionality you can kind of I find that that Mm -hmm. the way diversity inclusion play out in reality is not in a very intersectional way because you have Mm -hmm. to then you have that sort of tick box effect I think yeah I think as well when you talk about intersectional identities it does become like a really it's a difficult frame to look at things from because I think that there is like a lot of um, idea of this idea of intersectionality being really empowering but like obviously the the origins of it as sort of a critical frame to mm-hmm. look at the way things work, not necessarily something to be celebrated, like intersectionality, the way that it, it interacts with people's identities is actually a really negative thing mm-hmm. because it's increasing that alienation that you feel mm-hmm. and that kind of like exclusion. Mm-hmm. And kind of, I think that while it can be a really liberating term, sort of in the same way that we talk about like owning the word disability and owning mm-hmm. the word queer and owning these community terms and like identifiers, is that they are great in displaying diversity and identifying diversity, but at the same time, it's kind of, they are things that have a really difficult background and grounding. Mm. I think that that is interesting. And sort of listening to you speak, I was thinking about, well, like, what are we defining diversity and inclusion within? We're talking about now having an existing curriculum that already has happened and has been going Mm. on for ages, whether well or not. Mm. And it's kind of, you're working within an existing framework that may be really restricted. And that's really difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's when, when you try to introduce diversity in like a staggered way mm-hmm. in something that already exists, you come across so many challenges and so many different wants and needs and so many different people representing so many different kind of concerns that it's really, really difficult to build an overall picture of mm-hmm. what it would look like for everyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the inclusion for me is really a really, really broad term. And I think that it, it kind of takes into into its like knowledge and appreciates all of the different facets that make up a person and I know that for me and within a queer community it's kind of like there is an idea that there are so many people I know like all, pretty much most of my friends are queer like most of the people that I like interact with are but at the same time they don't always it's you take that awareness you take that identity with you into whatever you go to you don't sort of leave a queer or disabled space and stop being queer or disabled mm. you that identity and that part of you that you have is something that intrinsically is working and operating within so many different spaces that you use in so many different ways. I think it's really difficult because when you think about diversity and inclusion in relation to the curriculum, it's at university, your curriculum is kind of your life. You don't have a split where you kind of go home and stop working and you don't see the people from work because the people you work with are the people you live with and they're probably the people you sleep with and they're probably the people you dinner with. So you don't, you don't stop. And I think that that's why in universities, it's really important to have an idea of appreciating the diversity of students and staff Mm -hmm. and finding ways to remove, to liberate them, to remove the things that are stopping them from being included, not to kind Mm -hmm. of level the playing field, Mm -hmm. which is what some people like to think Mm -hmm. about, and sort of making like, we can do the bare minimum, like we'll put in a ramp. Like, that's great. But um, it's kind of, it's like thinking about how you go the extra mile to actually remove the things that are creating the differences Mm -hmm. and not just, um, like, giving someone, like, what basically is a booster seat to try Mm -hmm. and, like, help them see at the road. Mm -hmm. It's not about that. It's about, like, actually making the road just safer and, like, better for everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, so I'm going to speak a bit on how I think these terms are used in Mm -hmm. higher education. Mm -hmm. From my experience... When I, so when I interviewed for my current job, I finished my presentation talking about why inclusion matters mm-hmm. by effectively saying inclusion matters because exclusion is happening. Mm-hmm. And these terms, diversity and inclusion, are used in higher education as a way of framing something very negative mm-hmm. in a positive way. Mm-hmm. It's trying to sort of put a sheen on their attempts mm-hmm. to, to fix a systemic problem mm-hmm that is being addressed through the guise of trying, like you've picked up on the fact of like individualizing things or, you know, just throwing in a ramp that makes things more diverse without actually examining the structural framework of the institution itself Mm -hmm. that is contributing to the fact that the ramp is even necessary in the first place. Mm -hmm. And it's, they they now, I I feel, are sort of almost losing their real meaning Mm -hmm. of what they should represent Mm -hmm. because as soon as you start, there's a lot of, there's a lot of research that backs up the idea that as soon as you have a policy on something like diversity mm-hmm. and inclusion 
I'm using air quotes on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) For the record, let it show. (laughs) Um, It actually serves more to mask the fact that you're Mm. actually doing anything about it Mm. because it looks like you are trying. And as soon as it looks like you're trying, the people in in the positions of power think that they've done done the work. They think that they've they've solved the problem. Um, and so I think it's really important to keep reminding people mm. of mm. the opposite words to these words. The fact that we lack diversity, mm. that we have far too much uniformity in our in our environment in higher education, and we have far too much exclusion mm. going on. I think that's a really, really good point as well. And I know I'm technically guiding the conversation, but I have so many thoughts about this. But mm. <laughs> um, I think particularly what you said about like um, when there's kind of like institutional policy around like um, diversity or inclusion, and it's like we love diversity and stuff like that. I feel like it's often used as an excuse for like um, institutions to kind of like shield them away from any form of criticism. And then that always comes with the idea that people in marginalized groups or people who are people who are having negative experiences because of their marginalized identities then need to be grateful to the institution that they've done something. Mm-hmm. And it might not necessarily be something that's actually helpful, but it's then still the idea is like, oh, but we've done something for you and this is something that we've additionally done to accommodate you. So you should be grateful to us for doing that, even though you're not necessarily making our experiences better. And I think the idea of, I think, yeah, the terms diversity inclusion is so contextual. And I think within the parameters of like higher education, it is being used increasingly so as something to kind of, to just like put like a really, really nice sheen or like an image on what universities are actually doing. And that tends to some, very often can literally just be having like people of color and a prospectus and stuff like that. And it's like, we've done the diversity thing. We can tick that box. Um, And I think with these conversations, I'm always reminded of like, I I think it's the Combi River Collective, or Charlene Carruthers, who's this incredible um, black queer feminist who kind of theorized the idea of um, this ladder, where it's like, in this ladder, it's like white men, um, white privileged men are right at the top and black women are at the bottom. And this idea that you need to be able to climb that ladder to be, or other minority, other minority groups, particularly, I think, um, in that theory mentions black men and white women, um, are trying to climb that ladder to be able to get to the top. Whereas it's not necessarily kind of removing the ladder and making Mm -hmm. sure that everyone's kind of on the equal playing field. It's a very neoliberal idea of Mm -hmm. we all need to be the best all the time at the risk of throwing other groups under the bus. And I think that's where intersectionality Mm -hmm. is not necessarily accurately performed in a lot of these Mm -hmm. institutions because it's very much pinning groups against each other. Where it's like, oh, this group needs to be grateful that we've done this for them, which is very, very problematic. And then for people who belong to different marginalized identities, it's very incredibly difficult to kind of be in these spaces. I think as well, like when you talk about diversity and inclusion, it's something that like is not really recognized by people that don't need to think about it, mm-hmm. is that access doesn't always equal engagement, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like you can have access to a particular resource, yeah. you can have access to a particular room or a particular staff member, you can have all these things that are available to you, but that doesn't mean that you're gonna engage with them if the culture doesn't change. If the systems mm-hmm. change so that you can be in that room, you can be at that table, you can be talking about a thing or learning about something that really would benefit you, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna actually take part Mm -hmm. in that it doesn't mean that you're going to have your voice heard it doesn't mean that even if you're placed at the table people around the table are going to listen to you and be like yes she's saying something really interesting Mm -hmm. so it's like even if they're making these doors open Mm -hmm. but they're not actually inviting you in Mm -hmm. that almost is more damaging because it's a kind of performative sense and it's like they've ticked the box and they've done it and now Mm -hmm. they can rest easy knowing that they've made it possible yeah but if they're not encouraging you to do it and they're not incentivizing it yeah then how it how is it gonna change Mm -hmm. the way people are thinking even if they're being told to think a certain way and you're being told okay well you should you know be a better ally to the people around you that are people of color that are queer people Mm -hmm. disabled people that are women but you're not your view on it hasn't actually changed culturally then it, you're, you're yeah. not gonna you're not gonna care yeah. <laughs> yeah I think that idea of performativity is so so important and that's often what's so used particularly I think in higher education where it's kind of like universities are like safe liberal spaces where everyone can be best friends and it's super cute all the time whereas it's <laughs> obviously not that and if you ask anyone from any marginalized community they will say otherwise but I think especially when we're thinking about curriculum review and stuff like that and I think what you mentioned earlier was really, really important. And I think the stuff around the social model of disability as well, of like, we need to be able to create an inclusive system, not necessarily mm-hmm. fix a system that's already existing. Mm-hmm. I think a curriculum review offers the chance for that, hopefully, not good. Um, mm-hmm. But I think if, it'd be interesting to know if um, 
over this time, the University of Edinburgh has been around for a very, very long time and hasn't had a curriculum review, in at least my knowledge, for a while. Um, so I think oftentimes when we experience courses that are diverse, inclusive, again, I'm doing air quotes on a podcast, um, uh, it would be interesting to know, like, if you've had experiences of courses that have actually really been critical or critical of a lot of these dynamics um, or critical critical of like hegemonic values and stuff like that and have done so like within those courses and I think oftentimes that comes from um, the work of staff members who are putting in extra work to be able to create those spaces for oftentimes for marginalized students to be able yeah. to experience them in a positive way so it'd be interesting to know if you've had if you have had any of those experiences and if so what the possible positive nature that's been in I mean, for me, it's, I mean, I, so I did my undergraduate 2007 to 2011 mm-hmm. and my master's 2011 to 2012, 13, mm-hmm. which was just... Now you're in a load of debt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in Scotland. So oh, thank you. yeah. <laughs> you're fine. I'm fine. It's all good. Um, I mean, I, I, so my own, my own experience of like undergraduate curricula mm-hmm. were frankly, there was no effort made. Mm in terms of inclusion but that's just made me really hyper aware um in terms of uh, one thing i have experienced in the teaching opportunities i've had is that i have had the freedom mm-hmm. to kind of embed that which i i suppose for me at least the fact that there are people not to blow my own trumpet but people who are aware of things and trying to critically evaluate teaching practice mm-hmm. and and think more carefully about what is embedded and what is in the curriculum and what mm-hmm. is being taught um I think that for me that brings a little bit of happiness yeah. that there is at least that freedom mm-hmm. in higher education that for me so I, my PhD looked at what happens in schools mm-hmm. and there's far less freedom mm-hmm. in school education I think at curricular level to to kind of shape what's being taught and what's being learned mm-hmm. whereas for me at least higher education has that opportunity if the right people are doing the teaching and or if people are able to undergo the learning that requires them to mm-hmm. do the right kind of teaching um but I suppose for, I mean, the the word curriculum itself. So I've just, mm-hmm. I've just it's a great quote. I wish I could remember. It's my thesis um, from a book called Decolonizing the University, mm-hmm. um, which is edited by um, Gurinder Bamra, and it's about the fact that any curricula is loaded with power dynamics, mm. and it it is political mm-hmm. and. So if we're talking about curriculum, like how for me it's like, well, how do we get away? Curriculum's just another one of these structures mm-hmm. that is built in a certain way, and actually, how do we? I don't know if there is a, a curriculum that truly is inclusive and is yeah. by nature as of well. it. Being, yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, it's um, sort of going slightly tangential now. But it was at an amazing roundtable with Jeremy Dutcher, um, mm. who was the arts and residence at Glasgow University a couple of months back. Um, so he's an indigenous. Canadian Two-Spirit musician, amazing, um, released an album all in his Indigenous language and was like, I'm not translating this into English, I don't care. And I was like, mm-hmm. thank you. <laughs> um, but we were talking there about decolonising genders mm-hmm. in the context of the university. Mm-hmm. And really what became apparent to me was that we can't really change things. We can't fix everything about this massive mm-hmm. ancient structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, like my utopian ideal is like, let's just... Scrap it. Um, let's scrap it. <laughs> I, was, I was part of a, um, again, I suppose it's the benefit of higher education. I was part mm-hmm. of a project um, here uh, with um, Dr. Matt Brennan, who used to be in the music department here in Glasgow, called Rip It Up and Start Again. Mm-hmm. Um, and our idea with that was like, if we could literally rip up music education mm. and start again, because I don't know about other subjects, but music is horrendously bad across the board, mm-hmm. across the UK for any kind of diverse and inclusive teaching. Mm -hmm. It's not even an Edinburgh-specific thing. Music is just, from what I've seen, way far behind Mm -hmm. a lot of other subject areas. Um, And I'm not... I mean, I have some ideas as to why that is, but I'm not entirely sure. So for me, until we completely... Mm. There's no one way to fix it, and there's no one way in which any sort of efforts seem to make much of a change. Mm -hmm. It has to be this full, sort of systematic, structural Mm. overhaul and rethinking the aims of it. Mm. Yeah. Like, I don't know in this sort of degree-driven, qualifications-driven mm. thing. I mean, big question for me is always, like, what's the purpose of a university? Mm. Are we here for degrees so we can get jobs? Are we here for learning in and of mm. itself as a valuable mm. thing? What What's the purpose of it? Because mm. I feel like that is part of the problem. Mm. Mm. I think it's actually very difficult for me to think of a, a, an example of, um, like, 
inclusive and diverse curricula in STEM, like in the subject that I study. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have one really brilliant lecturer last year who was brilliant mainly because she would recommend reading materials um, from high-achieving women in the subject area. And it did also, it, it was also like something that you're hyper aware of in the fact that like, I feel that I've met so many interesting people that have challenged my ideas and the ways that I think about diversity and inclusivity. Mm-hmm. And I've been like, yeah, but what's further than that? And what are you forgetting because of the way that you're privileged mm-hmm. and your identity and the the kind of like ways that you hold your identity in having access to a lot of other things? Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, yeah, she recommended lots of like really great women lecturers and um, material from women, but where any of them women of color. And it's kind of like losing that extra kind of, that shouldn't be extra, but it's kind of losing that awareness that these things matter a mm-hmm. lot. Um, but I, I did, I'm a such a typical student and I took a gap year and then I got here and in my first year I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do an elective of social anthropology, um, which was like actually really good, um, in many senses in that like I got to like just really read a lot of stuff that was mm-hmm. not STEM related. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel that it challenged me and that's the, the really good thing is, but it does mean that, um, you have to acknowledge that a lot of the equality and diversity work that you do, especially if you study a STEM subject, tends to be extracurricular, mm-hmm. which is really sad. Yeah. And it, it does, you do kind of get stuck in a space of, and I know, like, I feel this, so I imagine that students that hold other lots of other identities that hold more marginalization than mine, like, would feel this so much more extremely, but it's kind of a, a thing of, well, I should be able to have this awareness and hold this, like, pride in this feeling in everything that I do I shouldn't be having to sort of like go home and do an extra three hours Mm. work thinking about like LGBT representation to like have that kind of passion there should be a way for me to do it in the sciences Mm. um and it's and now I get to use my favorite word it's such a nebulous um (laughs) area to think about like equality and diversity because it's just it applies in so many ways and like Mm. I, I feel like it's such a big thing that sometimes if you're not studying it specifically, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to find a way to fit it into your professional life. Mm-hmm. And I don't even have a professional life yet. <laughs> so that's terrifying. Um, but I do think that like uh, when I when I took outside courses and when I did extra reading and when I looked at things more in my own time, I got such a bigger sense of like, how can I challenge myself to think about what the next thing mm-hmm. is? You know, I have these awarenesses. That's great. That's a good start. But what's the next step mm-hmm. and um and that mainly has been through curriculums that apply to things that aren't the things I study mm. which is quite sad mm. yeah mm. so I not being a student at present but have obviously been a student in the past um the thing that I think rings really that, that comes up a lot for me and in, in my memory of being a student is this notion that you are in the place you're in, doing doing the academic stuff you're doing um, through the consequences of a meritocracy. Um, and actually this word is one that is bandied around that effectively tr- it's used to derail mm. understanding of the lack of diversity and inclusion that is happening. And I was reading Grayson Perry's book, The Descent of Man, last week, and in it, he cites the fact that the word meritocracy has its origins in satire. Mm. And I didn't know this. Mm. And so in reading more about it, discovered that the word was coined to effectively make a joke of the fact that it is impossible to have something that is mm. a true meritocracy. Because mm. you can never account mm. for all of the intersecting oppressions mm-hmm. that contribute to whether or not somebody gets to a, a successful point in their life. And this was such a crystallising moment for me. Um, and I think it's something that so many people don't know, mm. that it's, it's the, the word meritocracy is a joke in itself, and it's, it's supposed to be satire. It's not supposed to be used as something mm. that, <laughs> that represents equality. Um, it represents the opposite. Um, and I think that in learning, like everything that, um, Rosie, you said about doing things outside of your curriculum, like mm. STEM is... I know from my experience in working with people in the academic development department in Edinburgh University that 
the academics in STEM are the ones who are most resistant to mm. embedding equality and diversity in their curriculum because yeah. they do not think it's relevant. They think that science is pure and factual. Mm-hmm. It's science first principle, right? It's your work speaks for you, but that doesn't matter if you're not providing a representation for people that want to do work but can't because they feel like they don't belong. Yeah. And I think that's such a like it is such a crucial aspect of something I think a lot about is whether actually judging people specifically just on their skills without acknowledging what they have to overcome to have those mm-hmm. skills in the first place is just so backwards. Mm-hmm. And like that's so confusing to me that so many people hold this idea. And like I can sit in a room and like I sit on the Equality and Diversity Committee for my school. And I'm really, really lucky and privileged to do that because I'm, I'm the only student that I know of that sits on a committee like that mm-hmm. and is just like a second year that's just kind of like mm-hmm. out here doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and like hoping for the best um and uh like it's really interesting sitting with all these really amazing academics who are really incredible in their field and who know so much more than i will ever know and then having to like explain something really mm-hmm. basic about equality and diversity to them which i feel bad about in a way because i'm aware that the only reason i have access to that information is because i'm surrounded by so many people that are so willing to take the time and do the labor to explain those things to me um and i think that in stem it, it definitely is like a um, and I, I'm sure there are so many problems in the arts as well, definitely. Um, not least the kind of idea of like, well, let's debate about this mm-hmm. in an academic way, but let's invalidate things too, um, and be really edgy. But like, it's kind of, it's kind of strange for me. Like that, it, it's kind of framed in this really like, can we collect data on it? But it's like equality mm-hmm. and diversity and inclusion aren't things that you can always collect data on in numbers. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a really qualitative experience. Mm-hmm. And like that's what's really interesting about your project, and I know that when I had the presentation about it, is collecting um, like actual ethnographic data about the experiences that are going on and how like equality and diversity are so like intricately related to your personhood and your experience in like a way that you can't really write down mm-hmm. in like a percentage. And that's really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that like um, curriculums that focus a lot on data and a lot on analysis and being very like critical sometimes miss out that really like um, that real like humanizing mm-hmm. aspect that mm-hmm. comes with those things and these identities. Yeah, and I think in my experience of I was um, a sociology and anthropology student, so it's really nice that you've had positive experience because I did not. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I think in my in my experience of like this role of speaking about equality and diversity, particularly within the College of Science and Engineering, I think what I found is that it is very much oh, but we're science, we're objective, mm. that's it. Um, mm. And not only is there not the kind of like that recognition of how different forms of knowledge are created um, and what that kind of means and what it means to like decolonize knowledge production as a whole. But it's very, very interesting to see how a lot of um, those kind of like hegemonic and quite toxic values play out in just like um, relationships or in terms of conversations that people will have in committee structures where there's no recognition for the fact of like, oh, maybe you, maybe the reason that you don't think this um, person's presentation is important is not because you don't value this topic, but it's because you don't value what she's saying because she's a woman and you don't think that she's qualified to be here. And that's why you're mm-hmm. asking all of these quite rude questions. Mm-hmm. And there's never really kind of that appreciation because I've sat in rooms of particularly around um, actually like interview panels and stuff like that where people, after the person who's being interviewed goes away, there'll be a conversation and someone will be like, oh, I just don't think that person seemed very qualified or I don't think they can manage this department. And it's like, they can because they clearly have mm-hmm. the qualifications mm-hmm. for it. And the re- maybe the reason that you're thinking that is because of some like underlying sexism that you have mm-hmm. but there's never really that kind of acknowledgement which is so harmful particularly for students and staff within those team who belong to those groups because they have to exist within that space and then to fight against that space but then it's harder especially when you're in a smaller school because you see these people quite a lot it's hard to kind of feel like you have to kind of like make noise about it because you then worry yeah. about the relationships that you're possibly going to burn like I don't have a positive relationship with many people in the sociology department which I'm fine with but a lot of that was because I was pushing for like decolonizing the curriculum in sociology and that was not something that people took to very yeah. kindly but it's really really hard for people who are in those positions where particularly if they want to go into academia afterwards like how do you build relationships with people within your departments when you need to get references from them but you also need to maybe call them out on some things that they're saying or some stuff that they're doing. I think it's hard to be the person in the room, right? Like, the person in the room that has to say the thing Mm -hmm. that's going to make people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that's, like, uh, hopefully, like, as we push forward and, like, Mm -hmm. these kinds of things, that will just, like, disappear Mm -hmm. really slyly. But Mm -hmm. it's... It is difficult. And, it it, like, I was... I saw I was in a meeting, um, like, 
about a week ago um, where they'd uh, asked um, myself and some other students to act as like student representatives in this um, I think I'll probably talk about it properly in a later question but um, and when we're like discussing other stuff that's more relevant um, but they kind of uh, wanted to talk about like embedding resilience and emotional mm. resilience and well-being within the curriculum and this is something that I have really conflicting opinions about and that I find sometimes really really problematic for a lot of reasons and I was trying to explain these reasons and I was so aware that in that moment I had become the awkward person in the room mm. because I was trying to explain ableism to people that didn't care mm. and I was also looking around and thinking okay they've asked for student representatives I'm looking around with four cis white women mm -hmm. and I was like ha I was like I, I want to say this but I was like I've become the person in the room mm -hmm. and I was like kind of caught between this real idea of being like, I want the diversity and I want the inclusion and I want the curriculum that they're reviewing to be really brilliant. Mm -hmm. But I was like, but I'm the only one speaking about this and none of them are listening to me. And I'm full at the same time of being like really stubborn and being like, I want this to happen. I feel it should happen. And being like, I'm vindicating my, like I'm, I'm right in this. I have a conviction and I'm right. Mm -hmm. But then also struggling with that idea of like, oh no, I'm the awkward one. Yeah. I'm the one being difficult. Yeah. I'm, I'm the person that's bringing it up and it's the emotional labor of that mm -hmm. and like and that for me is like I'm speaking up for communities that sometimes like I'm not always a part of mm -hmm. and that and that makes it sometimes in some ways easier for me because I have like a privilege that I can like play on mm -hmm. but at the same time it still feels really alienating and I think it's really interesting as well when you talk about the curriculum and inclusivity it's like um it, it's like such a like a, a a play between study with if you're someone studying mm -hmm. with this identity or you're studying of it mm -hmm. like if you're studying yeah. it academically and dissecting mm -hmm. it and having discourse about like the intricacies of it and removing like the emotion and it's like mm -hmm. really whose experience is more valid mm -hmm. and I, I think like that's a lot um of the, the stuff that people talk about um especially within discussions about like um, mental health and mental illness being totally different, distinct things. Um, like the when we talk about, we had like a an event in Mental Health and Wellbeing Week, and we invited along a psychiatrist um, who was really great, loved him, um, brilliant. But it's you, I, and not in a negative way at all. But I was very aware from this guy who was very senior and very qualified that we had some opinions that like we were both evaluating as we were talking to each other, because he was talking about the things that he taught and the things that he'd expressed to people and asked them to learn about this thing. And I was talking about the things that I'd learned living with the thing. Mm. And that's so, like, it's it's not always negative, but it's yeah. just really interesting. Um, mm. But sometimes I think it can veer far into academics when you're talking about, like, discourse mm. about, like, language and semantics and, like, mm. identities and, and, like, kind of diagnoses and, um, like, where people are from and the indigenous communities that they live within and the ways that those, like, operate. And, like, then it can become very, like, disembodied from, like, the mm. feeling that it gives a person. And yeah. that can be really odd. Yeah. Been, that's been a really interesting kind of experience for me as well, kind of... I'd never questioned anything about being the only brown woman in working, like, in a visible way in the music sector mm -hmm. in Scotland. Yeah. Um, and especially in universities and classrooms and sort of organisations and stuff I'm very mm. much, I'm the awkward person because I turn up and I'm like, I'm here because I'm brown and I know no one else here is going to be mm -hmm. yeah. and that's like, you know I, I mean, it's got to the point where I can't kind of joke about it and I go mm. in and I do my thing but being that person where you're like, no one else is going to bring this up so mm -hmm. I have to, and that burden that you take on but it's interesting now that I've started trying to bring that into my research it kind of happened. I couldn't have finished the PhD if I hadn't addressed that stuff because mm -hmm. I was going through a whole load of um, like brain stuff of mm. trying to figure out where that stuff fitted in my work because mm. I never had done um, because, again, object objectivity and all that. Mm. So i kind of been trained to not think about that stuff. And I've got this constant thing of going, well, I don't have any background in gender studies. Mm. I don't have any background in race studies. But I'm brown women, so can I still talk about this? And yeah, can I still just say probably yes? <laughs> but that's the thing because I can talk about my own experience yeah. of it, but I find it still quite difficult mm -hmm. in higher education settings mm -hmm. for that to be received. Yeah. I feel like I have to fight twice as hard than someone mm. who's just done race studies and gender studies but has no lived experience because mm. I don't have the qualifications to back it up. Mm. And I find that's an ongoing thing for me in terms of trying to justify why I talk about that in my work without any citations because I haven't been able mm. to do the reading yet mm. you know I find, I find this obsession with citations as well and mm. Diva you mentioned earlier about 
like forms of knowledge mm-hmm. and stuff and I just find everything about this like literally everything down like, like just, just everything about how we operate mm-hmm. is so restrictive and like even things like teaching you were talking about reading lists and stuff I can't rem- I can't I couldn't name a woman whose book I read as an undergraduate or a master's I mean yeah. maybe as a master's student yeah I remember mm. um someone whose um analysis method I used but it's all it's like Again, when I talk about music being really far behind, mm-hmm. it's yeah. at that level. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have the books, we don't have the yeah. scholarship, um, yeah. I think. And it's certainly not enough to become sort of embedded in curriculum. Yeah. Uh, it's not part of the canon. Mm. Again, I'm doing it. It's my turn now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of that has to do with things around what's valued yeah. in scholarship at a wider yeah. level. Because when yeah. we talk about higher education, we have to talk about the research as well and yeah. how that feeds into the whole system of what we value. Because yeah, I find absolutely. a lot, I find a lot of pressure. I'm a qualitative researcher. Mm-hmm. I did my compulsory stats module and decided never again. <laughs> so I am very Which much so it. valid. I respect that. <laughs> I just it's just not how I think and how I work. Yeah. And so I'm very much qualitative. But is is I, that though when someone doesn't trust your opinion of or your like not even your opinion but your experience which is something you really like you've lived through yeah. if they don't trust that and they want data for it is that them saying that they don't think your voice is valid in that sphere? I mean, I do still think that even if we're talking qualitatively, there's still push mm. to be like, where's your yeah. you know there's that extra fight to make yeah. sure that the results and also this, all this language mm, of yeah. like data and ownership and results and findings and discovery and I'm like oh um <sighs> you know, the whole thing just makes me cringe I find it really difficult and I've realized that being a qualitative researcher actually means very little in terms of how much you know in terms of wider qualitative practice it means mm-hmm. very little in terms of whether other qualitative practitioners actually value process and lived experience mm-hmm. over rigorously analysed and collected data. Yeah. Mm. This is a tangent, but it's a very short one, because it's just funny. I'm sure you're all aware of the concept of a meme. Yeah. But like I'm I well yeah, I was <laughs> <laughs> I was like we made this um like I did this presentation to like at first years like la- at the beginning of last year um uh, in their like welcome talk to biology and biology is a really big school so it has loads of students so we ran this workshop like a load of times. It was like me giving a presentation about like well-being and like how to talk to each other about self-care and the services that we have and I had a meme in there that was like about like struggling at university and it was just like levels of stress and like people are so fixated with data that like the person that was um the staff member like booking the room for me was like Oh, I just just looked at your slides and can you cite the source on this this study? And I was like, oh, I was like, it's a meme from Twitter. I don't know what you want me to say. I was like, I don't belong here. I get it. It was so. It was just. I just read the email and I was like, well, it looks like I need to just shut my laptop and walk away for the day. But it was just really. There's a fixation with like. Where can you back that up with? Like, yeah. I don't trust you. Where's the thing? Yeah. And that's not an example of that because it was. It was a meme. So I just wanted to pick up on what sort of seems to be the theme that was emerging there, this notion of there being almost like a hierarchy of proof mm. in terms of mm. what is valid in academia and what mm. is accepted. So um, one of the things that I did in one of our, our early meetings as a research group, because we are called evidence base, and part of the reason my understanding behind the history of that is because evidence is such a big deal mm. in science, and mm. so we need to be able to prove things. Proof is part of how you make something accepted theory um but i made the point that you we have a responsibility to define what we mean by evidence and it cannot be so narrow as to being just data and numbers and things that are cold and perceptively clear again Mm. more air quotes (laughs) um and i think all of this also for me has parallels with what is accepted as as being sort of valid just in society. So we see this, you know, people in positions of power that are accepted and valid are cisgendered, heterosexual Mm. white men. And they are cold, they are emotionless, Mm. they don't share personal stories, they don't, they they go on facts and statistics. And all of that embodies this this ideology in academia of what is seen as being the top, what Mm -hmm. is being the best. And when it comes to accepting things that are more more person focused and emotion fueled, it's already always equated and syn- synonymized with femininity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's you know it's why they have these sort of stereotypes of women in the arts and mm-hmm. men in science. Um, go and do the Harvard implicit test if you think that's not a real thing. And it, it's it, we need to just dismantle mm-hmm. this because 
evidence has to be valid regardless of where it comes from mm. and store the power of story is so essential mm. you know you see the power of story working to change minds in the media mm -hmm. largely for not benefit of society mm -hmm. largely to harm marginalized people but it's it is a fact that story m changes minds and 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 makes waves um, and we need to recognize that power mm -hmm. and actually harness it for good instead of evil mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like for me like that kind of sums up the issue when you bring it back to curriculum and the fact that it's like the, the canon is made up certainly in music the canon is made up of like cis white heterosexual men mm -hmm. who've it's been like dead for a really long time. Tale, right? Yeah, I love yeah my dead white men. That's what I call them. <laughs> I talk about dead white men a lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, I feel like until we get past that, what is valid? Because I think in curriculum, in terms of the arts as well, it's down to whose art is valid mm. for you know um, to be considered um, worthy of study. Yeah. So I've had to convince my I had a student at Glasgow Uni be like, can I can I use the Spice Girls as an example for my essay? I was like, yes. I would love to mark and read mm -hmm. and have you include the Spice Girls in your essay, but the fact that that had to be a question in 2019 yeah. about whether that was a valid topic of study yeah. for me raises questions about, well, who, yeah, whose art mm -hmm. and whose, um, sort of, whose work is also valid in terms mm -hmm. of... And I don't know how, how much that translates to, mm -hmm. to STEM in terms of, I suppose, whose theories yeah. are valid mm -hmm. and whose studies, mm -hmm. etc. And I think that, that ref when that gets reflected in which books the library stocks. Mm. So yeah. a big problem for me with one of my students at West Scotland at the moment is we're trying to push to get ahead of the curve before they go on to their third and fourth year so that we can get the right books in the library because if the books aren't there then they're not allowed to, you know, they're discouraged from studying certain topics mm -hmm. for their independent study projects. So there's this like yeah. knock-on effect of what do we consider valid knowledge? Mm -hmm. What is how does that then impact on what is in the formal curriculum mm -hmm. in our reading lists? How does that impact on what books are stocked in the mm -hmm. library? Yeah. How does that impact on what knowledge the students have access to at their fingertips? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because of course like journal articles, paywalls, all that sort of stuff. If the yeah. university isn't subscribing mm -hmm. to these really critical journals that mm -hmm. actually talk about this stuff in a real meaningful way then yeah. how do the students get to learn yeah i'd like to just say really quickly i think it's interesting when we talk about like this person that's normally portrayed and like being white and male and cis and heterosexual and all these identifiers that are um ones of privilege and i think that there are probably will be some people that will listen to this podcast and feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. with that mm -hmm. and i think that the big the single biggest thing that i've learned about diversity and inclusion from people that know a lot more telling me what they know is that you have to look and examine why you feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it should not be the minorities doing the legwork for diversity mm -hmm. and inclusion necessarily. If people want to, they mm -hmm. can engage in whatever way they feel safe, but it's down to people that can act as allies to make it possible for those people to have their voices heard. Mm -hmm. And I just think that that's an important thing to, to yeah. frame like that. Can I say something very quickly on discomfort? <laughs> so um, a great PhD researcher at Bristol, Rosa Target, gave um, a talk at the Transgender Intersectional International Conference mm -hmm. yeah. last week talking about this very notion of calling out and the discomfort that comes along with it and the sort of human yeah. instinct to defend yourself um, and absolve yourself of responsibility mm. for that discomfort. And what is really important to recognise is that when you feel uncomfortable for being called out or um, asked to examine your privilege, the reason you feel uncomfortable is because that that everyone else has been forced to experience mm -hmm. the discomfort all the time mm -hmm. because they do not have those privileges that you have. And I think it's really important for people to start learning about their privilege and recognise that it's necessary to be a bit uncomfortable mm -hmm. and to, to f sort of, I don't like to use the, the term get comfortable with discomfort because mm. that seems like a juxtaposition, but it's becoming familiar with it that you experiencing that one instance of discomfort is evidence of the fact that people who are marginalised are constantly mm. uncomfortable mm. because the system is not built yeah. for them and the, the structure that are being pervasive that are pervasive mm -hmm. at the university and not supportive mm -hmm. um and it's also it's actually a learning opportunity for you yeah, as a person yeah. to grow and to be better yeah. than you were before and that's actually a really dare i say beautiful thing yeah yes. i think like it's sorry <laughs> sorry Diva. um i think it's really important like i think i can maybe speak for all of us when i say like we didn't we didn't we weren't born 
with this understanding of things no. we've, we've learned it and everyone is learning and it's not something mm. I feel like a lot of that comes from like well how am I meant to know that I'm privileged blah, blah, blah. Mm. and I'm like well we all learn it mm-hmm. and we're all constantly learning it no one's perfect at this mm-hmm. I put my foot in my mouth all the time trying mm. to make sure I use the right language and stuff it's a constant mm constant learning process regardless of where we're at in terms of our professional lives and personal yeah. lives and on like on that like i think especially when people are kind of like unlearning their privilege or like, kind of like confronted with their privilege or confronted with the knowledge that they might actually have privilege that they definitely do that they're definitely ignoring i think hmm. i think the worst part sometimes one of the reactions that I often get when having these discussions is when that person with privilege then starts apologizing to me and i'm like I, i'm I'm sorry that you feel bad about this, but like this is not a personal thing. I don't need an apology because your apology also doesn't really do anything to like change the system. Like mm-hmm. it's nice that you recognize that you have privilege and that anyone who has this kind of privilege has contributed to this like wider system that does disempower and marginalize different groups of people. But giving me an apology really doesn't do anything. Like it's just mm-hmm. and then and then you come into the whole thing of like um, particularly like white women tears and what that does to like really really undermine a lot of like quite valid and critical things that particular women of color and black women have to say and i think when people come back with the oh but i feel so bad that this has happened you're like oh my god i I don't care like it like you feel bad but other people are actually negatively impacted by this like it's not just about your feelings i can i just say one final thing (laughs) two things that have been mentioned first the the concept of speaking out if you feel safe to do so Mm -hmm. uh i feel it's partly my responsibility to mention the fact that this podcast was initially supposed to be including staff Mm -hmm. in the discussion around curriculum development and I am not an expert in that area I'm here just speaking in terms of diversity and inclusion Um, and the fact that no staff members felt Mm -hmm. safe talking about this in this space despite it being a really great space that Mm -hmm. that Diva you've created for us to have this conversation and you know we're having a really really great conversation that that voice is lacking Mm -hmm. it's missing from this discussion Mm -hmm. and I understand that there are going to be uh, moves made to accommodate for Mm -hmm. that in future but it's something that university needs to recognize is that their staff members who are the experts in this Mm -hmm. area are are not safe putting their metaphorically putting their head above Mm -hmm. the parapet on this conversation Um, and they need to wake up to that it's really very important Uh, and then my other thought was yeah the apology and all of that sort of notion of trying to all the apology does is it links back to the idea of Mm. trying to absolve yourself of responsibility Mm -hmm. the only acceptable response as far as i'm concerned is i have to do better Mm -hmm. and i have to learn and this all just comes back to the the notion Mm -hmm. that it's a learning opportunity um but at the same time it is not the responsibility (laughs) of marginalized people to educate you Mm -hmm. take that responsibility Mm -hmm. yourself Go and educate yourself. Mm-hmm. Ask questions, but don't be shocked if somebody says, I'm sorry, but I don't have the time and emotional labour to contribute to your yeah. education at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not their fault. Mm-hmm. There are other ways for you to educate yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And again, Google is a free resource. There are yeah. so many resources online. This is something that people can do themselves. I think you're right. It's when people get offended that a marginalised, a person who belongs to a marginalised group, when they don't want to educate you, they're like, oh, well, I tried. <laughs> that's not good enough. Um, so we'll take that perfect opportunity because that's a great segue into episode two. Um, so I think this was a really, really fantastic conversation. And I think we really touched on a lot of elements on what diversity inclusion means and what it doesn't mean, who it excludes, um, how we talk about these issues more broadly. So thinking about how it's about changing structures, not necessarily like adding things on to make it slightly better for a couple of people. It's about rethinking what the university is and what diversity and inclusion is. And stay tuned for our next podcast where we'll be talking mostly around how we can practically kind of do this work, particularly thinking about groups across the university. So working with staff, working with students, but working especially around the dynamic of marginalized people who are kind of doing this work. Are they doing it for free? To what extent is that appropriate? These are themes that we've kind of touched on that we'll go into in the next episode. So I'd like to thank my fantastic panelists for being the best. (laughs) And stay tuned for episode two.